Welcome to the Neo Dutch One Podcast. My name is Isaac Kamins. This is a bi-weekly podcast where my friend Jess O'Brien and I discuss internal martial arts, qigong, and meditation. In this episode, we're going to continue our discussion of the Wu style of Tai Chi Chuan, and we're specifically going to look at the connection between Yang Ban Ho and Chuen Yo, the founder of the Wu style and the son of the founder of the Yang style. Uh, then we discuss one of Chuen Yu's uh, top students, Wang Mao Zai, and also Wu Jinchuan. And then we turn back to the Tai Chi treaties and discuss some of Bai Wa's thoughts on the next verse in the Tai Chi classics. And if you go over to our Patreon, we have an extended episode where we go about 15 minutes longer, as well as a bonus episode where this week we continue our discussion of the 100 character tablet as well as continue our look at the differences between the fire and water method of Taoist meditation uh, as Bruce describes them in an interview he did with Chi Journal. So I uh, hope you check that out. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support and take care of yourselves. In today's episode, we're going to continue our look at the Wu style of Taiji Chen, including the founder, Chuen Wu, and his son, Wu Jian Chen. Um, I'd like to start from classical northern Wu style Taiji Chen by Tina Zong and Frank Allen, uh, 2006. So it starts, uh, I wanted to it, pick up where it's talking about the second generation of Yang style masters. The sons of Yang Luchan, the Invincible, were uh, Yang Ban Ho and Yang Chen Ho. And we keep returning to Yang Ban Ho's name keeps coming up. Um, and oftentimes he is connected with his dad's top student, Chuen Yu. And uh, so there's a connection between the sons of the grandmaster and his best student, and they link together. And as we remember last time, um, he was the he, the Manchurian, Chuen Yu, he wasn't allowed to bow to Yang Luchan, otherwise he would make himself an equal of the king, which would be unacceptable. So he had to bow to Yang Luchan's son, Yang Banho. So Yang Banho had been sent to the countryside to study uh, the small frame form and then returned back to Beijing with the new innovations. He resumed his duties helping his father train the guards at the imperial palace. Banho was also building his reputation as the finest empty hand fighter in all of Taiji Chen, while his brother Yang Jianho carried on his father's tradition of the Taiji Chen spear duel. Yang Banho exemplified the art with empty hand, defeating the infamous dog boxer, and the strong man known as the man of 10,000 pound strength, with a single technique for each of them. Later in his life, young Banho also dispatched a young Shaolin boxer, making the young man sing like a swallow with his last breath. Needless to say, young Banho was revered among the palace guards, and the best of them studied with him as well as his father. You know what the sweet singing like a swallow is? <laughs> right, isn't that the uh, infamous throat attacks? Ripping out the trach, yeah. Ouch. Yeah, so that's another famous Tai Chi fight story there. So the best of the students were a group. There was Wan Chun, who had mastered the yang, or harder elements of Tai Chi, Ling Shan, who mastered the yin, or softer elements of the art, and Chuan Yu, who mastered the transformational energy of Tai Chi Chen, which allowed him to switch smoothly from yin to yang and practice what was considered the highest levels of the art. So that's... The student Trenyu is, oh, you know, we see, we hear them in stories connected with, uh, between him and Yang Banho. So in turn, the Manchurian Imperial Guard Trenyu taught his Tai Chi to three main students. 
So this uh, this Wu style Tai Chi starts off in three different directions. There's his son Wu Jianquan, who, when the Republic replaced the Manchu Dynasty in 1912, adopted the Han name. Um, you know, same guy Wu Jianquan. Right. He's originally Chuan Jian, but now he's Wu Jianquan. And then the other two students were Wang Mao Zai and Guo Fen. So I don't know much about those guys. Um, but it says, after teaching for a while in Beijing, uh, the son of Chen Yu, Wu Jianquan, relocated to Shanghai, where he founded a strong Wu-style Taiju Chen school that still exists today. He modified his father's form slightly and created a few trademark postures of his own. And so he, in turn, left the Shanghai school to his son-in-law, Ma Yue Liang, mm. um, and his daughter, Wu Yinghua, who were, I remember them, they were in the magazines back when we were first learning. So that's the story of Wu Jianquan's uh, spreading of his martial art. And there's a lot of other folks involved in the school, obviously, here and there. So we've been trying to figure out more about Chuan Yu and uh, his son, Wu Jianquan. And try to get perspective of how did they teach, what did they teach, what was different. Like that that piece just said that Wu Jianquan changed his father's form a little bit, but it didn't explain how. Yeah, I mean, I think the main thing was the difference. They just changed the frame a little bit, I think. I mean, you can see different ones have like a little bit larger po- larger postures or lower mm. postures. I mean, but essentially the forms are pretty similar. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, like people say their style comes from their young style comes down from young Bonho, but how does that look any different from young Cheng Fu? It's not super clear. Like it's not consistent. Like a lot of different yeah. people claim it. I mean, again, I, I think <clears throat> a lot of that's people kind of trying to just differentiate themselves in different ways. And some of it's obviously based in some truth, but yeah. some of it's also just, you it's, know, these innovations, some are. Some really useful, I'm sure. Your your best guess on what might have happened, but you know it's hard to say. So one way to learn more about Wu uh, Wu Chuanyu, the founder, was to look at uh, students who spoke about him. And one of his students was this guy uh, Wang Yo Lin, better known as Wang Mao Zai. He was Chuanyu's best student, and that's what it says here in Lu Sheng Li's book, Combat Techniques of Taiji Xingyi and Bagua. So in the same way that Chuan Yu was the best student of Yang Luchan, his his best student was this guy, uh, Wang Mao Zai. So this, this tells a little bit about Wu's Tai Chi training uh, through the eyes of Wang. When he was young, he went to Beijing to study business administration, but also liked martial arts and practiced several hard styles for many years. He often delivered building materials to the camp of the emperor's security guard, where a variety of famous masters demonstrated and taught their skills. Whenever he was there, he watched the students practicing and found himself particularly drawn to Chun Yu's Taiji Chun style. Um, so this guy, Wang Mao Zai, was born in 1868. In Dong Yong Jing's book, uh, he mentions him just quite briefly as um, a student of Ban Ho and John Ho's. Uh-uh. Taught, this is, they taught several people outside the family, such as blank, 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 Chun Yu and Wang Mao Zai. Uh-huh. So. And it says here that he was Chen Yo's best student. So, interesting. <laughs> so when Wang Mao Zai first met him, he asked Chen Yu to be his teacher. But Chen Yu reserved his answer until he had tested the strength of Wang's desire. He taught Wang only one position, called Golden Cock Standing on One Leg, and required Wang to study and practice only this position for seven months. Damn. 
<laughs> How do you like that? It's a it's a brutal posture. I mean, yeah, that's your that's one of your favorites, right? Standing on one so leg. to speak. Wong complied with great dedication and without complaint, and Chuan Yu was duly impressed by Wong's persistence and commitment to practice. Chuan Yu recognized that Wong was deserving of detailed and intensive Taiji Chen instruction. Wang was 32 years old when Chuan Yu accepted him as a student. So that would be in, uh, when he was 32, that would be the year 1900. So that would be the year of the Boxer Rebellion. He accepted him as a student. So this is an early generation of Taiji here. Um, so he, he practiced hard and achieved good gung fu, but he did not really understand Taiji trends. So his progress stalled. He needed one more step to advance. One day, on a visit to his hometown, he saw stonemasons working beside the road outside his village. He stopped and watched. At first, he thought only that it was interesting to see how they worked, but then he had a sudden insight and realized the deep relationship between the qualities of hard and soft. The stonemasons' hammers, for example, were heavy, and force was needed to wield them, but he also noted that the stonemasons were relaxed as they made their hammer strikes. At last, he began to grasp the essence of Taiji Chen. And so, uh, just to end the story of Wang uh, Mao Zai, at home he kept thinking and practicing and made great leaps in his understanding of Taiji Chen. When he returned to Beijing a few days later, he surprised his friends with his newfound skill. At the age of 52, he was beating all challengers and had achieved the highest level of Taiji Chen mastery. Right. And I like that idea of, like, you swing the hammers with a pretty loose action. Right, right, right. But when it makes that contact, you hit with a heavier surface. I like that as a uh, metaphor for using Tai Chi properly. It's as loose as swinging a hammer. A strong guy swinging a hammer, is his arm is very loose and relaxed and empty, you might say. But yeah, I mean, it's that feeling of letting the, quote unquote, you know, letting the tool do the work, right? When you swing your arm, you don't need to add anything. Thing to it if you can just swing it with your body it's going to have plenty of and the, but there needs to be a hard nice hard surface to sure, do the hit you don't want but your... the looseness of the arm carries it and just gives it that oomph so in our quest to discover more about Wu Jian Chen we've been looking at a variety of books by other people and we found a translation on Brennan's site from Wu Tunan's book from 1931 mentions his teacher Wu Jian Chen and it's a pretty brief thing here um so he says, during Yang Luchan's early days in Beijing, he taught only three people. Wu Chuanyu, the father, Wan Chun, and Ling Shan. Then carrying out his instructions, after he died, they all became disciples of Yang Ban Ho. So another example of how the father, you know, Chuanyu was connected to Yang Ban Ho. Um, so Master Wu had a son called Jianchen, Wu Jianchen, who received the authentic Taiji teachings and is famous throughout the nation. Um, so yeah, he says Wu Jianchen has two sons, um, and they both have outstanding skill. Wu Jian, Wu Chuan Yu also taught Wang Mao Zai and many others. Um, and so a little bit more here, Wu Jianchen taught Taiji boxing for more than 20 years while in Beijing. And then it gives a list of students there. And then in the South in Shanghai, he also has a list of students from there. These men are all martial arts experts. So there's just another mention of him. So it's clear that he had like two phases in his teaching, Wu Jianquan. Um, you know, he teaches for 20 years in Beijing. Then he um, ends up in uh, Shanghai teaching. So there's that's the southern uh, 
right. side of his teaching. For, and he also may have end up in Hong Kong at a certain point. Well, during, yeah, during the war, he was in Hong Kong. So that's where Leo Hong Jae studied with him. Right. Um, and there was one more other piece from Lu Sheng Li's book where he mentions, um, he sort of explains what happens. He says, in 1928, the president of the Shanghai Business Association invited the uh, Tai Chi teacher Wang Mao Zai, you know, the other um, sort of top student, to teach Tai Chi in Shanghai. But Wang did not want to leave Beijing. He recommended his Gung Fu brother, Wu Jianchuan, for the post. So the, that was the student of the father, right, right. Uh, uh, Chen Yu. So he says, why don't you send my school brother, Wu Jianchuan, for the post? So Wu set out for Shanghai, and once there, quickly became very famous throughout southern China. The freak, there was a frequently heard expression, South Wu and North Wang, reflecting the widespread view that the two most famous Taiji Chen masters of the time were teaching simultaneously, Wu in the south and Wang in the north. Which is interesting because it's sort of portraying that, that Wu style was like the hot thing to do wow. in the 1930s. You know, like the two that saying, this is saying those were the two top Tai Chi masters of the time, sort of outshining Yang Cheng Fu. Mm. Yeah, maybe. Which is interesting. It sounded like it was really popular. Like it seems like nowadays, at least here in the West, in the English speaking world, Wu is seen as a smaller style, but it sounds like it could be. You know, and uh, I mean, it's always had. Few, I think the Wu's always had fewer adherents, but I mean, that's just because it's. Um, at least in for a for a point, time period in the '30s, it was red. It was like the. It might have been more. It might, yeah, I mean, something. it might have been popular for a little bit. Right, right. It was hot in terms of sheer number. The influencers though. were big time, but so that's a little bit of the history of Wu Jianchuan. It's clear he has a few different teaching periods. Um, and how much his style differs from his father's. Like some were saying that the the guy's Wang Mao Zai school was closer to Chen Yu's way or whatever. But now we're back to the Taiji Chen treatise. And the next uh, paragraph goes like this. If the opponent attacks upward, he will feel unattainable. If he attacks downward, he will feel as if he is facing an abyss because he will lose balance. If the opponent moves forward to attack, he will feel unable to approach. If I attack the opponent, there's nowhere for him to retreat. So here, here let's look at what T.T. Uh, Leong, how T.T. Leong explains it. So he says that, uh, you know, if he shoves you up and back, you should withdraw back and up by raising your body and hands. The higher he rises, the higher you follow, so it's impossible for him to reach you. If he presses you downward by squatting down, you also follow him, throwing yourself down and making him lose his balance. This is from the defensive point of view. Um, when you go on offense, you rise, when your hands rise up, you, your opponent feels as if he's going to be thrown up into the sky. When you lower your body to push him downward, he feels he's going to be knocked down into the earth. Um, so, you know, basically, uh, yeah, I mean, basically I think it's the idea that when they try to push on you, they don't get anything. Mm, so they just keep pushing. Right. So they just feel like there's it's unattainable, right? Like right. They, so you're always just a little bit out of reach. Mm. So they're kind of overextending. That's that slippery Tai Chi person. You can't quite like right. push them and push hands. Um, what's the second half? Uh, Facing the abyss. Oh, right. So, you know, then they can't, you know, and then when you attack them, that they can't get away from it, right? Right. So it's like they're they're feeling sort of the abyss. Well, I think the abyss thing is that feeling of just being enveloped by something. 
you know, that like someone's pushing on you and it just feels like they're pushing on you from all sides and you're kind of stuck because you don't have anywhere to go. And that's that previous quote about having when your when your central equilibrium gets thrown off, you're kind of paralyzed for a second there. And that's right when the person pushes you with the Neji. When Bruce talked about Yang Shao Jung, he, he uses he talks about the straitjacket thing, mm. that, you know, the magnetic hands, and then he puts his hands on him and you just like, feel kind of locked in place. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what he's talking yeah. about. Yeah, in, in Tui Show, you off you'll get trapped like that, and you know you just you're slightly off balance. You can't. You, yeah, but it's like as soon as you put your hands on the other person, they should feel like stuck, in, you know, and not when they put when they put their hands on you, you shouldn't feel stuck. So Baihua's got some explanation here. So he says, if the opponent hits my upper body with his hands, I will stick and hit from under the opponent's arm to gain the advantage of time, space, and energy. At the same time, I will also follow the opponent's trend. So if the opponent's going up, I'll go up. At this time, I'm on the inner circle and he's on the outer circle. The inner circle moves slightly and the outer circle moves greatly. The inner circle is advantageous. The outer circle is disadvantageous. So that's kind of interesting. So like he's you're riding the opponent, but you're kind of taking the inside on the course and they're kind of getting the momentum and getting thrown sideways a little, like you're cutting them off kind of. Yeah. Well, so the first part, right. Is, you know, if they attack, I use my flexion and extension as his flexion. and extension. Mm, so you borrow, you match, you, you neutralize them essentially. Mm. Right. And then once you neutralize them, you take the advantage of that little, that little space, that little gap. Um, and then I think this, small you know being the little circle is like um you know if you have a ball on a rope or something and you start spinning around in a real tight circle the thing you're holding will have a a big whip around you so So that's a tai chi type of thing you make a small movement while the other guy sprawls and makes a big sweeping stumbling move so you do a small little movement with your hand and they you know fly around yeah so you get that send them flying effect Uh, Yeah, so that's kind of cool, that circle idea. So according to this principle, no matter whether the opponent attacks me from any direction, up, down, left, or right, the result will be more up, down, left, or right. And make the opponent's attacks all miss. Since the opponent miss, I can enter the middle so that the goal of long is achieved. When I retreat, the opponent can't catch up so that the goal of fast is also achieved. So, well, that's... Right, so this is that idea if... um... As somebody attacks you, you you yield to it, right? That neutralizes their force. And then there's a moment where you kind of can flip it around on them, right? So they're still going forward as you come mm, back. To and, break the momentum a little bit. Right. And to close that gap, right? Mm. To get yourself closer to them. So now you can do the thing of being the little circle with the big circle, right? You have mm. to be close enough to them so you can kind of move them and you know this is just the idea of some basic small circle stuff that you know if, if i can get close to you and i can make a really small circle and connect it to my center line it's really easy to move you right i don't have to use a lot of external right momentum to do it so, right so it's the whole idea of this is like you're a little bit ahead of the other person in both directions so it's like defensively and defensively. right so when they're attacking you you're a little bit ahead of them to entice them in and when they start to retreat you're a little bit ahead Climb of them on. yeah you know so they they can't ever get away from you and it's it's you that. just disrupt their whole 
I don't know, momentum, their whole, their whole plan gets disrupted. Yeah. It's interesting. Like, well, they uh, always... the last couple have all been about that, about yeah. tilting or moving or shifting or unbalancing just a little bit to create I mean, space. They, the, the, the goal is to have it feel like they're always either, you know, they feel like they're either being chased or being pushed, right? So mm-hmm. they, 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 they never get a feeling of being comfortable where they can just go, ah, and like root themselves. Right. Because Reset. right as, you know, as soon as they do anything, you're right there either in front of them or behind them and destabilizing their center yeah. right yeah there's a subtlety to it that, that that tai chi thing of just the small movement creating the big results is the goal it's not the easiest thing to do but i mean one of so one of the things that um i used to like to do in sparring was basically try to time it so that you would either push the person or pull the person right when they were trying to put their foot down right so every time they tried to like root themselves, you either hit them or yank them or push them. And so they can never really get, you know, settled to do their technique. And just doing that a couple times gets somebody really kind of agitated and then they get kind of flustered and don't know what to do. And then you can kind of take advantage of that. So it's that same sort of thing that like, if you can get your opponent to be really kind of and not like not feel grounded, it makes your job a lot easier. So. I think part of this is that, you know, if you don't give them that thing to resist or, you know, that that sense of something to push on, they feel a little bit like, oh, what do I do? And then that creates an opportunity for you to kind of exploit their confusion. So let's move on to the next one. It says, even as small as a feather or a fly, I can immediately perceive the gene force and react to it properly. Make it difficult for the opponent to know my movements, but I know his very well. Yeah, so this is that idea of, you know, if you can, if you're sensitive enough, you can tell what they're going to do, you know, just a millisecond before they do it, and mm. they can't tell what you're going to do. Again, you're ahead of their, yeah. your ability to perceive is stronger than theirs, so you can be slightly ahead of their attack, ideally. Yeah. And then on the other hand, it makes it difficult for the opponent to know your actions because you're um, the idea of the feather or the fly. So that's the same famous Tai Chi bird landing. Yeah, story. I was just going to say this is sort of the the idea of the grasping the sparrow's tail thing that you know, but it goes in both directions. It's not just yielding; it's also when you come back. Baiwa explains it like this: To master the essentials of the above actions, we must strive for perfection. Use the dantian to balance and use the waist to control the movements of the whole body. The feather and the fly are used as metaphors for the fineness of balance. The more balanced you are, the more sensitive you will be, and the more you will be able to display your movements to the fullest. People who are relatively untrained in this area won't be able to know or predict your movements, but you'll know their situation well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think this is just that idea of if you're like, relaxed and soft and not telegraphing what you're going to do and you know again using your waist and your dandian instead mm. of you know lunging and lunging, swinging yeah and you know kind of lurching around it's harder you know it's harder yeah. for them to get you and easier for you to get them basically right and so like a lot of these stories show the tai chi master some unassuming average looking person and again you're because you're using balance and waist you're using sensitivity such that a feather and a fly could will affect your balance 
you don't have, you know, you may, right. appearances can be deceiving, especially in the case of Tai Chi. The I more mean, this balanced is that you are, idea, the more sensitive you are. You know, that, that like they just have to touch the fabric on your shirt and that's enough for you to start moving. Like they don't even have to like actually contact mm. you. You just need to like touch the hair on your arm. Right. And, you know, that's enough. And that you. idea of staying slightly ahead, you'll be riding them like a surfer riding a wave somehow kind of. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, you have to be pretty damn sensitive to do that. Sure, it's not easy, but, you know. Yeah, and it'll help you, especially against, and, you know, going up against relatively untrained people is definitely a positive. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe, more like he's saying, if people don't know about this, they won't yeah. know you. Yeah, I mean, he says untrained them. in this area. Right, right? okay. So okay. it's like, if someone doesn't understand this particular skill, you can fool them with Right, basically. You know, if I know they do, you got to use right. a different one. They're not using subterfuge. I mean, a lot of this stuff does come down to subterfuge. The the balancing and the tilting and the uh, inner and outer circle. Sure, I mean, it's a feather in the fly. It's very... Uh, tai Chi's whole philosophy, basically, is let the other person think you don't have anything. And then when they, you know, commit to it, you take advantage of their, you know, sort of their defenses being down, you know. Right. Like, I mean, ideally, it's pretty tricky stuff. So I, T.T. Leong has a little bit to say about that. He says, um, when you practice Tai Chi for a long period of time, your body becomes so sensitive and alert that as soon as you have the slightest contact with anything, you immediately feel it and sense how to respond to it. Even a weight as light as a feather you would not accept, but would try to neutralize. Your body is so light and nimble that even a fly cannot alight on it without setting it in motion. You can utilize the subtlety of your neutralizing energy to separate the legs of the fly and make it stumble as soon as it alights on your body. If you can do this, you have reached a high level of Tai Chi. <laughs> right. So he's not even doing it with a bird. He's doing it with a fly. But... And it tries to land on you and you're like ahead of it. It's like, can't, can't make contact. That's pretty damn sensitive. I mean, if, if you could do it at that level, that, that well, would be pretty the awesome. Truth is, you don't need to be that sensitive to do it right. against a big dummy who's trying to push you. Right. right. I mean, it's like. The, the whole thing is when you train it, you try to get to this ridiculous level of sensitivity. But y'all. Perfection, he mentions. Right, try to but, get to perfection. But you have to understand that the application of it isn't going to be, you know, you moving super slow. And, you know, it's like you're still going to have to right. move fast and avoid that punch. And, you know. Right. I mean, but, that slow part helps you get that sensitivity. Yeah. I mean, and it, you know, it, it I think in, it, it helps in all sorts of things. I mean, it doesn't matter if you're a painter or a, totally. you know whatever it's like having yeah. more sensitivity in your right. hands is a good thing that's so. that refined side of tai chi that's made it the world's most popular martial art right like yeah. no denying that like this stuff is really love well and it's also what makes it such i mean in, in some ways it makes it what what seems like bullshit to a lot of people mm -hmm. because it's true it's funny there are a lot i mean a lot of people who do Tai Chi who can't actually right. fight, you know, and they, and they use this, <laughs> they, well, they use these sort of like cooperation tricks and things where it's like, if the other person is pushing on you in a way that you expect, you can do these right. sorts of things. And it could um, breed false confidence. Possibly. Yeah. And it's, well, and it's like specific training, right? Like if you, you know, if you train basketball and they put you on the field with a bunch of professional NFL guys, you're going to crushed you know right. I and mean, so it's like it's just not what you're you know you're you're trained at so right. i think the you know the 
like misconception is that just having the softness is enough, right. you know, that the softness is a great thing to have. And if you get it, you can go much further than you could ever go with, you know, being just hard, yeah. but you need to be able to have structure and have all these other things too. So it's, you know, don't think that just because you can feel a fly land on your hand that you're going to be able to apply that to, right. you know, a 300 pound linebacker who's right. charging at you, to, you know, 10 miles an hour. It's like, yeah, you know. And that goes back to that stonemason thing of like the looseness is used at the right time. The hardness is used at the right time. If you loosely slap a piece of stone, you can't break through it. Yeah. I mean, this is the idea of, of the softness becoming steel, right? So then the next one, they say, uh, so light as object as a feather cannot be placed. And so small an insect as a fly cannot alight on any part of the body. So, yeah, again, very similar there. Yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, sensitivity. This to... version is very uh, poetic. You know, Ben Lowe made this one very uh, bare bones and very just... I mean, I think most, yeah, most of the time when people translate these things, they're translating it on it. Um, you know, it's it's more about pretty language and flower imagery than it is like this is how you're actually going to use it on you know, in a martial situation. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, I think Baiwa is more interesting than most on that level. He'll like, he's, yeah, he's getting a little more into like, right. Practical. The further we go, the little more practical the book right, is, right. seems to become. It's still, I mean, a bit out, you know, it's pretty, uh, vague in terms of, you know, specifics in terms of the application, but it gives you the general, you know, idea. Definitely. So, yeah, and then, then finally it says, The opponent doesn't know me. I alone know him. To become a peerless boxer results from this. Yeah, and that I think that really is the crux of it, right? That your, your softness, your structure, all of these things cloaks your movements. It cloaks, you know, your actions in a way that the person can't read you mm. and... At the same time, it gives you the ability to read them sometimes even before they're able to figure out what they're doing, right? So, again, that this sensitivity is... allows you, ideally, to be able to get a little sense of what they're going to do. So, Baihua ends here by saying, Those who can achieve this will be invincible. Since there will always be someone better than you, it would be too exaggerated to say that a hero is invincible, but the above principles and requirements should be understood and mastered as the first step to becoming a master. Right. So he's saying like, don't, <laughs> he says like, don't think this is going to make you invincible. Cause it's not, but it'll get, you know, if you work toward it, you can get highly skilled at this, you know, you know, the end result is not the, the practice. And I think he's being very clear about it's the first step. It's not the last step. Mm. You know, it's like getting this just means you're on your way to becoming a, you know, proficient at tai chi it doesn't mean you have attained the highest level yet truth all right man good talking to you see ya hey folks hope you enjoyed the episode uh just a quick reminder to check out the patreon we also have a interview we did recently with uh marnix wells uh marnix was bruce's uh classmate and i believe they were roommates for a time in taiwan uh, in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, so he talks about their early training with Zhang Zhaodong, with Wang Xujing, and with the 
previously unnamed white crane master that Bruce talks about in the Power of Internal Martial Arts. So uh, you definitely want to check that out. All right. Thanks for listening. Take care of yourselves and be well.